Our passage for the sermon this morning is James chapter 4, beginning in verse 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. Do you join me in prayer? Father God, as we have lifted up your name this morning in song and worshipped you, Lord, may you be worshipped here in the preaching of your word. May you be glorified and your name lifted high. And may your people be edified this morning, that we would be changed from the inside out by your word and by your spirit, Lord. We ask and pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we continue this morning in our study through the book of James. The Apostle James writing this to the churches spread throughout the land. And if you recall, the, the theme of the book of James, the theme of the book of James is that true faith will be exhibited by good works. James tells us that faith without works is dead. It's really no faith at all. So James admonishes us in the chapters that we've read before to be not just hearers of the word of God, but to be doers of the word of God. He tells us to be wise in how we think and how we live in this world not following the patterns of ungodly wisdom, earthly wisdom, which are exhibited in pride and selfishness and favoritism and untamed speech and strife, but instead to, to live and to pattern our lives off the wisdom that comes from above, the wisdom from God, which is humility, acts of righteousness and Christian charity towards one another. This morning, we come in chapter 4 to the topic of how we plan our lives and how we think about the future. So I want to make, I want to draw five points out of this passage this morning. The first point that I think is crucial that we get from this passage is that the fact that life is short. Life is short. James says, what is your life? You could stop right there, and that would be an, a great question to ponder, wouldn't it? But what James is asking is, how long are you going to live on this world, on this earth? What's the longevity of life here on earth? James compares our time here on this earth to a mist, a vapor. Imagine if you are on a cold day, and you, you see your, the breath of your air as a mist, right? 
You can see it, and then it's gone. James says that, in relative terms, is how long our life is here on earth. Does anyone happen to know who who is the oldest person living on earth today? The oldest person living on this earth today, as of Friday, because that's when I Google it, is a lady by the name of Jean Calment. Jean is 122 years and 164 days as of Friday. Second place, another lady by the name of Sarah is 119 years and 97 days. I'll bet you today if you asked Jean or Sarah how quickly their life went, they would say it was like a mist. It was like a vapor. It's done. Sometimes I like to look at old black and white Photos, you know, people who lived back in the 1800s, early 1900s. And I look at their faces, and I wonder what their lives were, were, what they were thinking when that photo was taken. They probably had plans for that day. They had plans for that year. They had loved ones. They had a life. And those lives are gone now. They vanished like a, like a mist. We read in... Psalm 103 that says, Life of mortals is like a grass, like grass. They flourish and flower like the field, but the wind blows over them and it is gone, and its place remembers them no more. When I look at those photos or those pictures, I don't know who they are, and chances are no one does. In Isaiah chapter 40, we read, All flesh is grass. And it's beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that it is appointed for us to die. There is an appointment for everyone in this room that I'm looking at today, and myself included, to die. And Ecclesiastes 8, chapter 8 tells us, that no man has authority to restrain the wind with wind or authority over the day of death. It's fixed, and it's in the Lord's control. Therefore, in Psalm 90, verse 12, we read that that we ask God to teach us to number our days that we may gain a part of wisdom. So we don't know how long we have to live on this earth, but we know that it's going to be short and it's going to come quickly. Point two is we don't know the future in general. We do not know the future. James says in verse 14, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. We think about all of the uncertainties in life that we don't know today. I wished I knew what the stock market was going to do. I don't. I wished I knew how long this housing market was going to continue. I don't know. I don't even know that tomorrow I might get in an accident and be killed. Uh, I don't know what health issues I might have next year. There are myriads of unforeseen circumstances that can happen in my life that are unknown to me. I think of the people who, in Boston recently, went to bed at night not thinking that their house was going to explode, 
Did you read about that? Gas explosions, just like that. Or the people in Branson, Missouri recently that just took a stroll on the lake in a boat and not, not knowing that that boat was gonna sink in just an hour or two and their lives would come to an end. So we don't know what the future's gonna bring, but we do know life is short and life is fragile. Point number three, then, we need to avoid what James would call ungodly living, ungodly planning for our lives. In verse 13, he says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. He says, You boast in your arrogance when you make a claim like that, a plan like that. When he says, Come now, he's telling them, This is important. We need to listen to this statement of what you're trying to make. The statement that is flawed with human wisdom. You might say, well, what's wrong with that plan so far as as it's laid out? They have a plan. They're going to do this. They're going to do that. Well, what James says, what's wrong with it is they're trusting in their own knowledge. They're not making any account for the unseen forces that can happen to their plan. And they have left God completely out of the picture. They're assuming that they're going to be the master of their fate, the captain of their soul. And it's worse than that. They even go so far as to boast in their plans. One version renders it rejoicing in their arrogance. They're making bold claims about what they're going to do in the future when they don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. We know people like this, right? Worldly, wealthy businessmen who make grand plans and boast about them. All you got to do is drive down the strip and look at the tallest blue hotel on the strip, and you'll see an example of someone who had a plan that came to failure, right? They, had, they didn't expect that, but, they, but it did. The Bible says that proud plans like that, God resists. God resists the proud. And the Bible tells us also in Corinthians chapter 10 that pride goes before destruction. There's a parable that Jesus gave about being being foolish in your plans and thinking you have what you need for this life to get you through, and it's in Luke chapter 12. It's a familiar parable, and I'm going to read it for you, beginning in verse 12. Jesus said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I'll do this. I'll tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, This night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? 
So it is for the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. This is foolish planning. This is what we want to avoid. Our next point is we're going to look at godly planning, practicing godly planning. James says in verse 15, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills is the key to godly planning. Now, it's not, James isn't telling us here that it's wrong to plan, right? He's not saying that. In fact, if you look at the Proverbs and, verse, and various scriptures, the Bible tells us that it, you're wise to plan. And you'd be a foolish not to plan. Proverbs 21 says that the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance. And everyone who is hasty comes to poverty. And in Proverbs 14, the wisdom of the prudent is to discern his ways. And in Psalm 20, may God grant you your heart's desires and fulfill all of your plans. So the Lord wants us to plan. He wants us to make plans. But the key element in our plans needs to be if the Lord wills. We make our plans, but then we submit our plans to the Lord and we, we stand ready and willing to accept the will of God to change our plans. The will of God to change our plans. This phrase, if the Lord wills, or Lord willing, is used several times in Scripture um, by the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 18, verse 21, we read, when Paul was in Ephesus on his way to Jerusalem, uh, when they asked him to stay longer with him, with them, he, he did not consent. But he took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this feast in Jerusalem, but I will return to you, God willing. And then again in Corinthians, to the Corinthian church, he said, Now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia, and it may be that I will remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay with you a while if the Lord permits. So just in these two examples here, we see that Paul had some very specific plans, right? But he qualified them with this phrase, if the Lord wills. God permitting, this is what I'm going to do. So, I want to ask you for a second. When you make plans and things don't go the way you had planned them to do, how do you react? How do you react when God changes your plans? Well, if you've submitted your plans to God and you're committed to the, cap the, the possibility that he's going to change them, we shouldn't be surprised, right? What we do often, or what I do often, is the first thing I do is feel some amount of anger or bitterness. And maybe if it's bad enough, I might even panic. I'm reminded of a, a good example of uh, this with a good friend of mine. We used to go camping together a lot as our two families. And we were preparing to do this camp 
this long road trip we had been planning for, for quite a while. And just the, like the day before we left, his truck broke down, needed a new transmission. And this brother said to me, he said, well, I guess God wanted me to spend his money on a new transmission. And he went out and rented another vehicle and we went on our trip. That's the kind of attitude we need to have when we make our plans. Submitting them to the Lord, to the will of the Lord. And I think it's, it's good for us to pause here and just remember, too, that if we're submitting our lives to the Lord, we're submitting our plans to the, to the will of the Lord, it's not always going to be easy, right? It's not always going to be easy. In fact, we, we read just not long ago in Travis's sermon going through the book of 1 Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 17, Peter writes, It is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. If that be God's will. So sometimes it is God's will for a Christian to suffer. We know that, right? The best example of all that we have of submitting to God's will, even regardless of the cost, is Jesus. The Lord Jesus, the night before he was crucified in the Garden of Gethsemane, how did he, what was he thinking? How was he praying? He said it in Matthew 26, 39, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as, a, as you will. It's an amazing fact that it was the will of the Father that Jesus die for the sins of his people, that he be crushed. And despite knowing that, despite the agony and the pain of the cross, the Bible tells us that Jesus willingly laid down his life and submitted to the will of the Father. The will of God, the providence of God, is so vast and so expansive. It extends from the greatest events in history, such as the cross, to the smallest, most minute events. We read it this morning in the, in, um, the passage about the sparrow falling to the ground. The Father knows that. If he knows these little things and he's prepared to take care of them, how much more will he take care of us? Let me read a couple of more verses that relates to that. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 29, we read that no, not one sparrow falls to the ground apart from the heavenly Father. And then we read, the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 33. The plans of the heart belong to man. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer from the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs 16, 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he wills. Proverbs 21, 1. He does according to his will amongst the hosts of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Daniel 4.35. 
So if we know that the vastness of God's will and the providence of God expand, is so vast and so expansive, how should we go about planning our own lives? I really think Proverbs that we read earlier this morning, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6, are very instructive here, very helpful. And they're actually my, probably my favorite Proverbs in, in the whole Old Testament. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. First of all, trust in the Lord, not in your plans, right? Don't lean on your own understanding. Realize that you don't know everything. And things are out of your control. Then acknowledge God. Pray about your plans before you make them, while you make them, and then submit them to God. And then rest in the assurance that as you live, as your plan unfolds, God is going to make your path straight. God is going to lead us, as David said in Psalm 23, beside still waters and in the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. For his name's sake. No, it won't always be easy, but it will always be for good. It will always be for, go- for good. As Romans 8:28 says, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. As we read this morning before the sermon, in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus gives us instructions for how we ought to live and how we ought to think as we're, we're making our plans. And essentially, he tells us, don't be anxious. Don't be anxious about our life or what we're going to eat or what we're going to drink. Why? Because God knows we need those things. And if, his, if he is sovereign over everything, he's going to take care of our needs. So Jesus tells us, don't be anxious about our lives. Live life one day at a time, trusting that the Lord will provide for us. Amen? God's providential care for his people. Why should we worry? You know, as I was thinking through the sermon, and at this point I thought about a phrase that a lot of you have heard, and that's this. God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Now, we know that that statement alone needs a lot of qualification, right? But let me tell you that for a Christian, for a child of God, that's true. God loves us, and he does have a wonderful plan for our life. Uh, In Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11, we read, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Isaiah 58, 55, 8 and 9 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, my ways are not your ways, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so my ways are, are higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than yours. And then in Psalm 40 we read, Many, O Lord, my God, are your works which you have done and your thoughts towards us cannot be recounted. 
to you in order. If I were to declare or speak of them, they are more than can be counted. God's thoughts about you, his child, are more than can be counted. We think we think a lot about our, our lives, and we do, sometimes too much. God thinks more about us. God thinks more about your life and your, the plan that he has for your life, and he's going to accomplish the things that we can't do. He loves us, and he has a plan for our lives, and it's going to unfold as he desires, as he plans. It's not always going to be easy, and we don't know how long it's going to last, but we know it's going to be good. And in the light of eternity, it's going to be glorious. It's going to be glorious. So the last point for this morning is obey God. Obey God. And by the way, if we know the vastness of God and, the, and the, that he is all-powerful and loving and caring and can see the future and knows the future and can bring it about, who else would we want to be in control of our lives? Not, not, my, not me. I trust, we should trust the Lord that he's going to be in control of our lives. And then we should obey God. In verse 17 of the passage this morning, we read this verse. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. That's a pretty daunting statement, wouldn't you say? Wouldn't you agree? To him who knows the right thing to do and doesn't do it, to him it is sin. So there's two categories of sin. Sins of commission and sins of omission. Right? A sin of commission is something like murder. The Bible says do not murder. If you murder, you've committed a sin of commission. Sins of omission, well, I think maybe it's best that we hear what Jesus had to say about that in Matthew chapter 25. Sins of omissions are good things that we know we should do, but we don't do. In Matthew 25, Jesus wrote, and said, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes, and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison, and you did not look after me. And they will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty, or a stranger, or in need of clothes, or sick, or in prison? It did not help you? And he will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did not do, for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Those are sins of omission. And while it's generally true that when we don't do what we know we ought to do, it's also a fact that you cannot physically do every good that you can think of that you know you should do. You physically cannot do it. Jesus alluded to this the night before he was betrayed, the night before he went to the, or the, before he went to the cross, when he 
was with Mary and she poured the perfume on his feet. You remember that? And she did this, the Bible says, to prepare him for his burial. And when Judas saw that, he was indignant and he said, that perfume could have been sold and used for the poor. There was a good deed there we could have done for the poor. And what did Jesus say? He said, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you will always have the poor with you. But you will not always have me. So when Mary poured that expensive perfume on the feet of the Lord, she was doing a good thing for him. It wasn't... It could, yes, it could have been used for other, other things. That's not what this is talking about. That's, this is not what, we're, what it's talking about when you don't do everything that you could possibly do. I think it's a more of a personal command. It's a personal... That's why James says, whoever sees the good they ought to do, to him, and don't do it, to him it's sin, Right? Him, it's sin. It's a personal matter for, between you and God. It's a little bit like after the Lord had risen and he was telling Peter what kind of a death he was going to die. You remember that? And Peter looked over at John and he asked Jesus, what about him? How's he going to die? What's his life going to be about? What's, what about him? And the Lord said to Peter, don't worry, essentially don't worry about him. You follow me. As we live our Christian life and walk before the Lord, he's going to call us to different things. He's going to call us to different ministries. He's going to call us to different acts of righteousness. Like we, we know from Corinthians, the church is made up of many members and we don't all have the same gifts, right? That's on purpose so that God can use us individually in the gifts that he gives us, in the circumstances that he gives us, in the areas of influence that he puts us in. The heart of the matter, the key point of the matter is, are you willing to be sensitive to God's leading, God's call in your heart, in the circumstance that you're in, to do whatever good work it is that he tells you to do? Or are you gonna resist? when you see that need in your neighborhood or whatever it is in your, in your work, when you see that need and you, then you know it's God calling you to bear witness, to do whatever it is to do, and you don't do it, then those are sins of omission. There's a saying that says, all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Right? If we as God's people don't do the good works that he prepared before us, beforehand for us to do, that we would walk in them, how is the world going to, going to see that and give glory to God? Because that's what it, the Bible says should happen. Not that we get the praise of men for doing our good works before men, that for us, but so that they may see that God has changed our lives and that Christ gets the glory. But if we don't act, who's going to see it? No one. 
And I want to be careful here that we don't judge one another. Don't judge one another. If God's calling you to a certain ministry to do a certain thing, he may not be calling somebody else. It's like he said to Peter, don't worry about John, you follow me, right? Be sensitive to God's leading and do the things that he tells you to do. And also, don't underestimate your contribution. You may think, I don't have much to give. I don't have much to contribute. But Jesus said, if you give a drink of cold water to one of these little ones, you will, in, you will not lose your reward, right? You do not know what one small act of kindness is gonna end up doing in this world. There could be a ripple effect that could go on to affect thousands and thousands of people. In fact, I like this saying, I believe it's a Jewish saying, I think it comes from, from the movie Schindler's List, but it says, he who saves one life saves the world entire. You, you affect one life, one person, you don't know that that could change the world. Jesus had how many disciples? Twelve. He had three close ones and twelve. Those twelve disciples changed the world. A small thing can, can mean a lot. So don't underestimate your contribution that God's calling you to, to do. And I want to say, as far as being obedient to God's word and the call of God, the most important good work that you can do as a Christian is to preach the gospel, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with the world. Amen? Amen. But how are they going to hear it if we don't say it? Romans 10, 14 tells us, How can they call on the one in whom they have not believed in? How can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? How can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. You may not have the gift of teaching. You may not ever stand before a pulpit like this and preach. I know I feel completely un worthy to do this and inadequate to do it. But as God gives us the ability, we need to go out in boldness and do it. We need to preach God's word. We need to pray as Paul did in Ephesians. When he asked the Ephesians to pray for, the, for him, he said, pray that, my word, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, right? The Bible tells us to always be ready to give a reason for the hope that is within us. Whatever circumstance we're in, wherever area of influence, when those opportunities come, pray for boldness and step out in faith and share the gospel. And when you share, when you do good works, make sure God gets the glory. If people ask you why you do what you do, you say it's for, for God, for God's glory. So in closing this morning, what have we learned? What have we learned? Now that we know that the right way to plan our lives 
is to submit our plans to God before we make them and to trust that He's going to lead us and guide us. He may change our plans for His good pleasure, but it's His will be done, not ours. And now that we know that, it's a sin if we don't do it. If we plan boastfully, if we think we know it all, and we make our plans and we go out in arrogance, that's a sin. We need to be careful how we make our plans. We need to remember that life is short and life is fragile. We need to know we don't know everything. We do not know everything. Our knowledge is so limited. So we don't want to be foolishly and plan or boast like we do. We want to be wise and plan our lives with eternity in mind. And we want to humbly commit our plans to the Lord. And then lastly, we want to obey God's command. And we want to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, we often judge a person's life, the greatness of a person's life, by what they achieve. By how much money they made, or by how many great things they did. But I think what really matters, what really matters, is not what we do, but how we do it. Our attitude about the things of God and our heart's attitude. King Solomon in his wisdom, he said what? He said, all of world's achievement, all the things that you can achieve in this world are vanity. He said, the end of the matter is that we should fear God and obey his commands. Let's pray. Father God, we are humbled by this message this morning from your word. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may present a heart of wisdom. Teach us, Lord God, how to submit our lives to you and how to bow to your will. Remind us, Lord God, that you're in control of all things and that you've called us out of this world, out of darkness and into light, and you have a plan for us. And help us to say, your will be done, not mine. To your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.